The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Rest of my article is explaining how my father made his journey from Amritsar to Shimla. So he got onto a caravan of a Rani and who had a military escort. So the guard of one of the trucks, he took pity on my father when he came to know that his wife is expecting and the family is in Shimla and he's here. So he tucked him into the back of the truck with the tarpaulin on on him where the luggage was. So he was just about had enough place to crouch. Now the Maharani, she used to at certain intervals ride on, she had a horse and, and a whip. And on that, on the, on the trucks, she used to whip in case there's a stowaway. And my father has borne those pain of the whip on his back. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome back to the True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora. Today we have a very special show because we are celebrating 75 years of independent India. India's independence is on August 15th, and I have with me today as a guest, Shukla Lal, who is based in New Delhi. She is a writer and she has some amazing stories to share about her own journey in Punjab, the part of Punjab, which is now in Pakistan, to Lahore. India. So without further ado, let's welcome Shukla Lal. Welcome to the True Fiction Project. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. And by the way, I come from Lahore. Lahore. From, I but, see. Uh, we lived in Lahore. Proper. Okay. So tell us the name of your book and what inspired you to write this? Well, the name of my book is Rano and Pulo. Now, this is about two girls. So Rano is from the rich family of Amritsar. In those days, every Sardar family had a Rano. And in the villages of Punjab, there has to be a Pulo. And so my Two heroines are one from Amritsar and the other one is from a village outside Amritsar. So Rano and Pulo. And what inspired me was that uh, when it was the 70th anniversary, independence of India, and I was at that time 80 years old, and suddenly I had a flash of the years gone by and of the India that we were 
entering into because when it was 70 years old a sort of transformation was was bubbling up so i suddenly had this feeling that uh, though i was only 10 years old but i had uh, heard a lot from my elders and all that and close people who had gone through a partition we were the fortunate family which escaped all that because we had gone to shimla for a holiday so that is what inspired me that i should write of the india in which we were brought up after partition and it is a 70th anniversary and there's a transition taking place so i should freeze that that india in which i have been brought up and my children have been brought up and even up to an extent my grandchildren so there is so much to dig into here you've got this dual settings right village mm-hmm. city that's one thing mm-hmm. You and your own family have escaped to Shimla. Escaped in mm. the sense you went on a holiday. You didn't at the time realize that it was an escape. No, no. No one, no one believed that they will not go back to their homes, those who were on holiday. And those who even when they came back, when there was a mayhem and when there were refugee camps on either side for the Muslims and uh, those who escaped, to Amritsar and the borderline cities. I'm talking more of Amritsar because I have that experience of seeing those refugee camps three years later in 1950. And uh, they were still existing, but not at, at that large scale. But when we went to Shimla, we thought we were coming back. And so like our family, there were everyone thought that they would go back. They never thought there would be this kind of a division. So, so what happened? Tell us. Uh, what happened with me personally? Yes, on, with from you. A, see, my mother was expecting. And uh, my aunt, who was the district inspectress of schools in Amritsar, she had already started with the team of the political executive committees set up refugee camps and refugees had already started trickling. So she sent a very hurried kind of a phone call to my father that what are you doing? That there is a serious situation and your wife is expecting. So you have to go to Shimla. Why don't you go now? So my mother was in her fifth month. So we went there for my mother to have her baby in Shimla and we would have come back. But we and so it was a four months kind of an excursion that we went for. So we left everything behind only enough for four months that we had taken. And uh, so that is how we people escaped. And then I've written in my article about my father went back. He dropped us in Shimla and he went back to work, even though there was that much of attrition between the two religions. So Shimla was chosen for what reason? Did you have family there? No, no. See, uh, practically every Punjabi family who lived in Amritsar and and Lahore always went to Shimla for summer vacations. We used to go for two months. So this time we went for four months. (laughs) I see. I see. Mm. So when things began to emerge, 
So you wrote an article which was recently published in the Chandigarh Tribune. Mm. And in it, you explained those circumstances about yeah. how your father dropped you off. He went back. Yeah. Huh. And then but then what happened? Uh, what happened was that by that time, while we were still hadn't gone to Shimla, our landlady requested us. She was a Muslim lady and we were three Hindu tenants of hers. Two of us, my uncle, my younger, uh, my chacha and us were on one side and the other side was a Sardar family. She said, all of you, please vacate. Otherwise, there's a plan going on that they are going to burn my house because uh, I've got Hindus as uh, tenants. So overnight, we people went and we were in model town in Lahore. But, but from model town, we went to Shimla. But it seems that things got so bad that he, my father had to even leave model town and he went to mall. On the mall, he, he took a, a flat, which we never saw. And his chairman, because he was with a British company, his chairman helped him to go there. Now, so he was so loyal and a person that even with all those circumstances, he was still working, knowing that his wife is going to deliver four months later. Then it was his friend, best friend from Ambala, who just said that I'm coming with my car and I'm bundling you into the car because you don't realize what the situation is. So that's how my father and he, they escaped. And they escaped so much on the nick of time that two kilometers away, a whole gang was after with torches and, and swords to kill and burn the house in which my father was. So they escaped and they reached just in time to the Vaga border and the car had caught fire by that time. They escaped from that and then uh, they parted company from there. And so now the rest of my article is explaining how my father made his journey from Amritsar to Shimla. So he got onto a caravan of a Rani and who had a military escort. So the guard of one of the trucks, he took pity on my father when he came to know that his wife is expecting and the family is in Shimla and he's here. So he tucked him into the back of the truck with the tarpaulin on on him where the luggage was so he was just about had enough place to crouch now the maharani she used to at certain intervals ride on she had a horse and and a whip and on that on the on the trucks she used to whip in case there's a stowaway and my father has borne those pain of the whip on his back then later on, they went over a pontoon bridge because she had the army escort. And they went over the pontoon bridge. And my father said that was the worst torture he's ever gone through. It was so painful. And then after that, he, they somehow reached Karnal or somewhere. And then he just uh, he escaped from the truck without the Rani seeing him. And then he reached Shimla. And then all was happiness and security for us. And four months later, my mother gave birth. Mm. And so she was making sure 
So I've only heard that my father bore the whip lash also on his back, but though the tarpaulin was on him. Oh my and goodness. And she, she couldn't catch. My father could not even make a sound. So oh dear. I can only say that because I only overheard. All of these circumstances of his true story, your family's mm. true story, mm. how much mm. of this factors into your fiction book, Rano and Pulo? Well, the thing is that what I have not uh, added at all about a personal escape or anything, not that. But because we lived in Lahore and we were going to Sargangaram school and our house was near the Bostal jail in, in Ichira. So we used to go in the Tonga and in that ride to the school through the fields, I saw all the agricultural side of Lahore because we were city people and we would go. The, it all depended upon the mood of the Tonga Wala. Sometimes he would take us from the Bostal jail side. Sometimes he would take us from another shortcut. And so those pictures that I have, I have put them into the book, those fields. The book opens with the, with the sound of the bulls, you know, pulling the water and the buckets going round and the water is being filled. And so then the water starts flowing and then the householders around they come and they, there's a big stone and they start washing the clothes and they chat, the women are chatting. And these two boys, one is a Hindu boy and one is a Muslim boy. They are a Sardar boy. They are great friends. They are farmers and their children, Muslim family and Hindu. It was common for everybody to live together. And the third person whom I've added is the Zamidar's daughter, a Sardar family. Now, that story of hers and her looks are what I have heard from my elders of personally knowing that particular family in a, in a after partition. They did, we didn't know them in Lahore or anything. It's just after partition, they, they seem to have heard these stories and these stories of the kind of uh, descriptive gory scene that I have given and how the, she escaped is in the public domain. It's nothing that I'm taking personal liberty on anybody's privacy. My goodness. Now, you mentioned at the opening that in your book, you are trying to capture an India frozen in that particular time, hmm. right? You're trying to freeze the moment and yes. give us a story of that India. What, what do you mean by that India and how is it different from this India, today's India? Mm -hmm. See, the flash that I had at the, at the 70th anniversary was exactly that. That I had a strong feeling that the India which got developed after partition, that though it was the partition took place on religious grounds, but the India that came up with Gandhiji as the guru, as the teacher, as the politician, as the spirit behind, and the team which got formed around him, 
their whole aim was amity that is that we are going to bring an india which is well integrated that it's an india not based on religion i see so that is the india so that is why we it so happened that when we never went back to lahore so we stayed for a year in shimla in shimla also the riots took place but that's a different story after that we were transferred from one place to another and we traveled all over india went to down south and then came and settled in calcutta so i have got a by that time i was t- uh, 12 and we were in madras and i was 14 when we had to my parents they decided that my sister and i we should stay back in amritsar because we had very good english and my aunt mm-hmm. was a district inspectress of schools and she said these girls have lost so much so many years they will be so old before they are ready for college so you leave them here they'll get triple promotion so we got triple promotion because of our english so that is the time when i was able to my sister stay for a year i stayed for two years in amritsar so i was very close to my aunt and both of us my sister and i used to help her in giving gifts and that would come from a first aid from the united nations and we would go and distribute them to these people in the refugee camps so all that has come into it now the india that we people eventually lived in and were brought up in really speaking our bringing up was in calcutta at the age of 16 my sister was 18 and we all over india wherever we felt we were never made to feel as refugees it was such a taken for granted thing we are indians finished even if we did not not know the language in the south and so that is what i have brought out throughout my book the story is that india the well integrated india and another thing is that in my books i've written two third one is or in the editor's basket that the way the women came out it is after partition with gandhi ji's supporting gandhi ji's mission where sarojini naidu and so many other people chatopadhyay kamal uh, kamla chatopadhyay was our principal in sargangaram school so with all that there was a national feeling there was not a hindu muslim feeling there was just one india one the you know the patriotism that is what i have brought out a and b that the women the way the women came the entrepreneurship that the women did not only that they were school teachers but they were actually business women they turned out to be it's amazing listening to you because it really reminds me of the fact that 75 years ago at the time of partition india had a certain ideal that she wanted yes. to live up to right that mm-hmm. she wanted to grow into an identity a nation state that she wanted to develop into I wanted to ask you today 75 years later do you think India has woken up to this ideal I would like to tell you one thing India had woken up soon after everything settled and the plans and programs that were being 
put into action, India was developing at that time. At that time, India was considered worldwide as a third nation, as a poor nation. But say about 10, uh, two decades later, say in the 60s or the 70s, I was telling my daughter today when I was reading this last question of yours that I remember that India became a globally recognized nation and a self-respecting nation, though poor, and but not as poor as it was soon after partition. Mm -hmm. That the India that came the, you do know that the policy of Panchila, Buddha's five principles, was brought out at that particular time from India. And it was accepted by internationally. And do you know that at that time, even China, America, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, they all the most wonderful leaders and they all accepted this kind of a peace. So that is the recognition that India had as Panchila. Now India is again being recognized as a reviving, as, as a world power. And uh, so the recognition that it is getting today is not new. The recognition was there before on different grounds as a nation of culture, as a nation of, of ethics. Absolutely. But 75 years henceforth, or however many years henceforth from today, do you think India has a long way to go? A way to go at all? Huh. See, to that one, it is my personal thing. And I feel that you know, history tells you that. That whatever has risen as a golden power or as the world power has had a down. It has always happened and so it is happening now. We are at, a, at the cusp of a transition, of a very different kind of a transition. Some people will say it's good, some people will say it's bad. But I'm not in that. And I've written in my books also that I'm not a politician, though particularly Rano Pulo has a very, very political background. Mm -hmm. And the political background that in under which the story runs is on, based on on facts which are in the public domain, which are or if they are debatable, they were debatable then. They are debatable now also. Who's what? What is not? I didn't get into that, and neither I want to get into that. So the ideal India that today we have a different kind of an theme who's making a different kind of an idea. So let us see where we are going. But you can feel the, the power that India is holding, despite all the challenges. Absolutely. So we can feel the power, but let's see what happens with the winds of change. Yes. Wonderful. So tell us about your book. Where can we find it? Where can we uh, buy it, read it? Is it on Amazon? Yes, it is on Amazon and on Kindle, and it is under the heading of author at 80. Because I was a awesome. debutante. Yes, Notional Press printed out my book, and I was called the debutante uh, author at 80. 
Well, what better age to write a book than at 80? I think that in itself is very, very inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) And so in that one year, from May 2017 to October 2018, I wrote two books. One was Rano Pulo and the other one was Floating Logs, which I really got a lot of publicity. And uh, then I wrote uh, about a book on Nazams, Hindustani, the Hindustani that we were grown up in. But then from where it just burst out. So I've written 29 poems. Then I've written six, seven short stories. And uh, so the third book is uh, written, finished since 2019, October. It is waiting to be edited and printed. Thank you so much. We are definitely going to list out the links to your books in the show notes below. That is Shukla Lal. She is a writer. She is based in New Delhi. And this is her partition story. And now for the fiction portion of the show, we switch to Sonia Kular, who is Shukla's daughter. She's actually going to read us an excerpt from her book, This is Sonia Kuller, reading from Rano and Pulo, a historical romance by Shukla Lal. Chapter 5 Mayhem in Dera Ambavali Schools all over Punjab were closed by July 1947. The word partition was being heard by one and all, but in hushed tones. Kavaljeet was in touch with the day-to-day news near and around the estates of that region. What was alarming him most was the first-hand accounts of treacherous incidents of animosity between farm labourers of the Hindu, Muslim and Sikh zamindars. Though their colonies were five to six acres apart, with access to the Havelis at least an hour away from each other by jeeps on kacha roads or longer by foot, each of the wealthy families had also put in place secret plans of leaving their homes in an emergency to shift elsewhere at short notice to safer havens like the cities to relatives there. They had already transferred their wealth in gold and cash too. Yet, moving out of their home and hearth was totally another unimagined, unpleasant nightmare. About the middle of July, the most dreaded news came that the Khan's estate had been attacked by the Hindu farmhands further away who had in turn been attacked by some outside Muslims not belonging to these estates. The Khans had to escape with nothing except what they could carry in their jeeps. The worst was that their ladies had been attacked too. Their poor labourers' homes were burnt down and women and children slaughtered. This had angered the Khans and their Kisans. The Aluwalias realised the worst had happened and that too very close at hand. But what they did not believe was that they would have no time to save their women, children and themselves. 
Jasbir and Musa had come running through the fields and warned Kawaljeet that all was not well and that a very militant group of fiery unfamiliar muslims were already on their way to attack this haveli that they should leave everything and escape Musa and Jasbir ran back to their huts but by the time they neared their homes they stopped in their tracks through the crops they could hear screams and see flames leaping high they quickly ran towards their favorite thick tree and hid themselves in its branches from their hideout they could see the sardar part of the colony being looted frightened men women and children being dragged out and mercilessly killed benumbed with utter shock jasbir saw his family being killed along with other residents with whom he had grown up musa saw his own father and uncles joining the strangers who were leading the attack jasbir and he watched the whole drama in horrified silence so as not to attract attention in the meantime kavaljeet hurriedly sat down to confer with his brothers so as to form a strategy about how to safeguard the women children and themselves they knew they could not get on the bus route to their jeep or tongas as a whole group as those routes were being used by the rioters so there was no time to escape to amritsar to their wealthy relatives living in their sprawling bungalow on the mall road with whom they had kept their cash and gold earlier on these were city folk and related to kavaljeet's family suddenly he enclosed himself with his brothers in a room after asking his wife to gather all the ladies in the drawing room while she did that he began to speak in a trembling voice we have no time to safeguard our ladies from the hands of the marauders we are far too few the haveli will not be able to hide our women to save their honor the only solution is to kill all of them with our own swords then we fight the attackers and die fighting when this plan was revealed to the ladies their first reaction was one of utter disbelief time was ticking it was not going to stop for them at long last the older women saw wisdom first the choice was not theirs at all if they did not die at the hands of their own men folk then they would die or not die but their sanctity would be looted without mercy at the hands of their attackers stoically the older ladies agreed and chose the place for their beheading on the stone next to the well where their clothes were washed daily their lack of time was the savior for the family it left no margin for emotions the men brought out their swords from the scabbards with grimness writ large on their faces and gleaming swords in hand all four brothers came out in the open courtyard led by kavaljeet the eldest horror struck the four boys crowded the doorway as the men marched out to the courtyard the sight of their mothers aunts and sisters gathered near the well in a trembling weeping huddle was a heartrending sight the women had been led to the well by dadi and fufiji followed by the daughters-in-law 
Fulu was most adamant, shouting at the top of her voice like a tigress. She want anyone coming close to her. Her dad shouted back, drowning all sounds. There is no time for fear or protest. It is better to die than be raped. This stunned everyone into an instant shocked silence. The reality of the moment hit all like a bolt from the blue. Dadi and Fufiji led by jumping into the well. Each man beheaded his own wife one after another in the midst of their blood-curdling screams of hi hi waheguru by now the sounds of allahu akbar could be heard close by quietly they locked the heavy main door of the haveli Here at the True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to the True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Hold up. 